Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson, again here with Dustin Dowdle. Dustin, how's it going? Hi there. Good, good. So this is one of the few times we're recording multiple episodes in a row, which is really nice for the scheduling, but it means this isn't going to air for a while. So if anything really interesting has happened, like conventions or news, we don't know about it yet because we're still recording this in July. Um, so today we are talking about playing other people's games, whether it's working with other designers in your design group that we talked about last episode, or just playing published games, or playing the classics like Chess and Go and Monopoly and Scrabble and whatever else. Like, what what is the benefit, if there's a benefit, to playing these games? Uh, so, Dustin, you want to start us off with some thoughts? Yeah, I started thinking about this when my wife, she was visiting Europe and came back with a game that I had never heard of before, and it's called Nefetoffel. And it's, it's a Viking game. And one of the things that was impressive to me, so it's been around for a long, long time, uh, but it was it's asymmetric in, in the way that it plays. And so one person's playing the Vikings in, in the center of the board, and, and the second player is playing Vikings on, on the outside. And um, the one in the center has a king, and the ones on the outside don't. And, and it was so interesting to me to see such asymmetry in a game that is so old and has been around for so long that it got me thinking, you know, there there really are a lot of what what seem to be more modern day conventions in some of these older games and and do we necessarily need to recreate the will? Um, I, I think that there's some some benefit to playing you know, some of the old greats or some of the, the newer games that are coming out and, and start recognizing what others are doing so you're not just redoing the, the same thing. Yeah, I... So you, you probably know more about this than I do with your career path, but I, I believe that the human mind cannot create something new just out of nothing. It cannot yeah. come up with something. All you're doing is remixing past experiences whether that's just taking a thing and twisting it a little or taking 400 very disparate things you've learned over 30 years and somehow bringing them together. But you're, you're always just remixing what you have experienced. So experiencing other games gives you... You get a wider palette to draw from to create something new. And I think that's also what could be argued as the downside to playing other games is if you're too strongly inspired and you're not changing it enough. So, and then there's, uh, what's it called? Spontaneous, simultaneous generation or something where two people come up with the same idea completely separately. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a thing that happens, especially if you have a, a more straightforward design and you'll, you'll see it a lot with uh, themes, like three themes of the same kind coming out on the market at the same time. And it could just be because some, some event happened that inspired all three of those designers separately and independently, and the games could be nothing alike. But there's there are always these just coincidences of, of things lining up. But playing other people's games helps you get new ideas. It can be dangerous if you don't change them enough, but it can also be helpful to realize that your idea, well, it was already done 10 years ago, and it was done well, so maybe you should change it a little. Yeah, I think, too, the, the more experiences you, you have that relate to each other, the, the more skill you've got um, kind of weaving through those, those ideas. But at the same time, there, there's something really genuine and, and cool about being fresh, ha having fresh eyes and, and not having had a lot of experience. I, I think back to, so I, I, I was a, a missionary for a church and went out, 
you know, teaching and, and that kind of thing in, in the past. And, and anytime we had a brand new missionary who didn't know what was possible and what wasn't possible, they just acted like everything was possible. And, and that kind of perspective was amazing because other people who had been doing it for, for so long, they quote unquote knew what was possible and what wasn't. And it limited their experience and their ability to, to reach out. And so I, I see the same thing happen in game design and therapy and anything else that I'm a, I'm a part of. When, when you've got this really fresh and unique perspective, you don't know the limitations. And so the sky's the limit for, for them. But we also need to have some realistic expectations of, of what works and what doesn't. Yeah, that's, that's why it's good to mix people together in design groups. Go listen to the last episode if you haven't. But like having the fresh eyes that just have this this absurd idea that people who have been doing it for a decade say, well, that's not possible. Like, well, why not? And if you reexamine your preconceptions, you can be like, oh, well, I guess it is possible. Things, things change all the time, especially with technology now. Fantasy yeah. Flight is releasing their um, procedurally generated Keyforge decks, which that's not a thing that was manufacturingly possible a couple years ago, and now that's a thing they can do. The technology has grown. So there's, and how can you wrap that into a new idea? And if someone didn't pop up and say, like, can we randomly generate decks? And someone said, maybe, that's, we wouldn't have had those things, which, I mean, you can argue if that's good or bad, but I think new ideas is always great. So I wonder, Chris, are, are there... Are there must-play games for designers, in, in your opinion, or is it broader than that? I hesitate to say must-play. I think, and I vaguely remember this from a conversation online that may or may not have been about game design. I think it was, but in, in literature, there's the concept of a canon of work that it is not required that you read, but it's a lot of the stuff that people read through school. So a lot of people, I mean, usually specific to a culture and things like that, but a very large group of people have a significant overlap in this core set of works. And I think when you have that, you can then build on those in future work in a referential way. So you could be inspired by anything, but if you're, I mean, this comes up a lot in like parody and satire, if someone's making a parody of something and you have no concept of that first work, a lot of it is lost on you. Like you don't get a lot of the jokes yeah. or certain things. So I remember back in the 90s when Pulp Fiction came out, there was just riff after riff after riff on like every comedy show and bit. And everyone was playing on like certain th- certain things about Pulp Fiction, like the fact that it's not shown in chronological order and uh, certain scenes that were popular. If you hadn't seen Pulp Fiction, a lot of that wouldn't really make sense. So while I don't think any game, to bring it back to the game design thing, I don't think any game is a must play. I think there are definitely, let's call them seminal works, that it's very helpful to at least know about, even if you don't get a chance to play them, read the rules, watch a video about them, and just to have a concept about, especially like major things, like Dominion quote-unquote invented deck building, which, you know, whether or not mechanics are ever really invented is kind of iffy, but it's there are first games that are said to have started a mechanism. Let's say mechanism, not mechanic. Although that's a, that's a whole separate debate on language. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think it is... Like, I've only played Dominion on the app, and only rather recently. I had played Ascension before that, which is another deck builder, but it's it has a different mechanic. 
So when I came into deck building, Ascension was my touchstone. I was like, oh, that's how deck builders work. You shuffle up the deck and you have a row. And then it wasn't until much later that I started playing other games, not even Dominion. There were the Dominion system of like, you have this stack, that stack, and that stack. So, and it's a very different game because you have the setup, you can go by your strategy because whatever card you want is available. Whereas the random setup is has a very different feel to it. It's more tactical, less strategy. But I think if you had not played Dominion, you had just played Ascension, and you go and you're like, oh, I'm going to switch up deck building. I'm going to have all the cards I want available to start. You could make Dominion without ever knowing about it. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to at least know about, especially these big popular games. If you design a game that's exactly the same as someone else's indie game that they made 50 copies of, probably not going to be a big deal. But if you remake Dominion, no one's going to publish that for you. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you use the, the term seminal work. When, when I was thinking about this topic prior to getting on to record, I, I had that exact same thought, uh, a seminal work. I even had the same phrase. And, and so it's funny. I'm not that, even that, sure about the definition of it. <laughs> I only know it from context. Yeah. But I, I agree. I don't know that, that there is a must-play game, though I, I think all the points that, that you make are, are good points. And whether Dominion should be one of those um, games that a person really ought to explore to, to some extent, or could they never have played Dominion, there, there, I'm sure there, there's a case that could be made. So I, I wonder with, with worker placement, I, I hear about Pillars of the Earth being one of those earliest, if not the earliest, um, worker placement game. And, and I don't know the, the details on that, if, if somebody wants to call me out on that not being completely accurate. But I don't know that somebody would need to go back to that initial you know, work. Um, could you play one of Shem Phillips' games, uh, Raiders of the North Sea, which has a very different spin on worker placement, and can that um, spur somebody in, in the right direction? I don't know. So worker placement is an interesting one to bring up. Because worker placement is one of my favorite mechanisms, especially for new designers. It's always something I say, if you're a new designer, go with worker placement because it's it's a very obvious thing to start with. Like even if your game isn't original or good, it can really get you through the process of designing a game from a very easy start because you have the, this spot is an action, put a little meeple on it, you get the action. Like you got that very simple structure. But I don't really think of... Worker placement is its own mechanism. It's just a subset of action drafting, and it's yeah. more of a thematic thing. But worker placement, the term, has gotten so popular that people call games, other action drafting games, that you don't have workers, and you're not placing them. But it's a different kind of action drafting. You're like, oh, it's a worker placement game, except your workers are ships, and you you know hold them in your hand. And they still call it a worker placement game because that phrase has gotten so popular to, to explain a type of action drafting, which even that, then people have built off of worker placement. So I think, I think the main, the main point of worker placement that makes it unique from other action drafting is that when you place your worker, that spot is blocked from other players. Like, I think that's a really core thing of worker placement, but then people have twisted that and like, oh, you're not blocked. Only two people can go here, or you can go here if you pay extra. And they've added all this stuff on top of that, that I think has kind of taken it further away from the original action drafting but they still call it worker placement although it's less worker placement it's a strange the strange evolution that just happens in game design and language is a very poorly constructed thing so 
we kind of we get these phrases and we just we stick with them. And I think I've gone way way off topic on this, but back to your original point, I would say, like for me, Lords of Waterdeep is an it's by no means the original worker placement, but it's a very it's a very straightforward worker placement design. So I always think of that as a good introduction to the concept. But you could you could just go in with a later work. But what what are you gaining or losing from like you said, the um Raiders of the North Sea worker placement is very different. So if that's your if that's your start, how different are you going to move for, on from worker placement? Are you gonna take that advanced worker placement and advance it further? Or are you gonna take that advanced worker placement and strip it down and make regular worker placement because you've never heard of it before. <laughs> right. You know, Jeff Engelstein and Isaac Shalev with their their new book uh, that is either just come out or coming out soon, uh, they, they talked about this idea of worker placement being action selection and, and how to <laughs> how to design a chapter around that idea because if, if they put action selection, somebody might go through the whole book looking for worker placement and, and never find it. And so they titled that particular section of the book, Worker Placement, and then in the beginning they, they explained that it's really not the the mechanic it's, itself or the mechanism itself. Um, it, it's it's something else. But they, they felt like it was important to at least name it that because that's what it's known as. Yeah, which, I mean, the the limitations of language when it comes to this is, is very apparent. So, I mean, I'm by no means a scientist, but I took some science classes in school and they have very rigorous systems for all sorts of naming conventions for reasons. And while in a lot of cases, the names themselves are just something someone made up named after the discoverer or someone, the, the rules for naming it follow certain patterns. So like naming a new star, it has a certain number and letter that's associated with all sorts of stuff. I don't know the specifics. Like I said, don't, don't at me, but the um, when it comes to game design, I think it's it's a very small community. It's not a particularly well structured community. There's no there's no higher up overseeing it. It's just a bunch of people doing things. So you get a lot of this just natural language developing. Like worker placement comes out as a term people use, and is that. A mechanism is that a series of mechanisms is it a subsection of this and i notice if you go to a board game geek they have their list of mechanisms or mechanics or whatever they even call it and it's if you look at that list it seems it seems very strange to me because it's it's a bunch of things but i wouldn't if i was making a hierarchy of game mechanisms i wouldn't necessarily put them all on the same level so some are yeah. like umbrella terms like they have paper and pencil games. And I'm like, well, what, what's a paper and pencil game? Is that all the roll and writes? Like, well, what if you use a marker? Is that still a paper and pencil game? Like, what denotes it? Is our role-playing games paper and pencil games? Our role-playing games roll and write games? I like to say they are, but that's kind of as a joke. But it's kind of not, because you're rolling and you're writing. And it's, it's essentially the same base concepts, but there's a lot, the role-playing aspect. So if you have a role-playing aspect in a roll and write, does it become a role-playing game? Is that still a roll and write? Like, there's... I don't think there are clearly defined lines, and I don't. There's no structure that says how these things should be set up, so we get a very messy system. And I know there's been like Isaac and Jeff's book is a a very strong attempt, from what I hear. I haven't read it yet, to organize a lot of these concepts into 
a system so people can look at it. But even they've talked about like how, like you're saying with the worker placement, like how difficult it is to kind of structure these into anything that makes sense because the way everything was created was in a very haphazard, just evolution sort of way. So there's, it's hard to organize things. You know, one of my other thoughts is when, when you've got a, when you've got a game that stands out as the seminal work for that particular uh, mechanism or, or style of game, and maybe we could even use One Night Ultimate Werewolf when it comes to social deduction games, that it, it's, it stands out as, as maybe one of those, those games that influences so many others. And, and what I find happens is people want to create games like that, but they want to be very different from that. And so you're, you're always hearing about this is a social deduction game without any player elimination, or this is a, a social deduction game that is not werewolf. Or it, it's interesting that so many people will, will kind of climb on the back of that work and then say, and we're very different from this thing. And I, I find that with Dominion, or I find that with uh, so many of the games that stand out as the seminal work, and people want to both ride on its back as well as differentiate themselves from that game. I'm exactly like that thing you love, but I'm completely different. Yes, yes. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's where games evolve, and, and we get to see some really unique things come from that. Yeah, I think especially recently, I just... Again, I can't remember what podcast it was because I listen like 10 a day. But they were talking about how there are so many games coming out now that your game either has to be perfect to stand above all of the good games or it has to be incredibly unique. And perfect mm-hmm. is really hard. But unique is, is easier to grab onto. So you're getting a lot of unique themes, less popular themes. Like uh, Wingspan just won the Kennerspiel, which everyone has been going on about how great Wingspan is. I haven't had a chance to play yet, but it does seem right up my alley. I love engine-building games. But I, a lot of the conversation is, you know, it's it's about birdwatching. That's a less popular theme, and now it's it's risen to essentially the top that you can achieve in this hobby, getting the Kennerspiel. So it's, it's an interesting thing to look at that I think a lot of... I think part of winning a huge award like that, like, yes, you have to be a very good game, but you also have to get a certain amount of popularity. If you make a perfect game that 10 people know about, you're not going to win a big award because you need, you need to hit a certain level of people knowing about it. And I think part of its popularity and spread is because it had a unique theme. It got, like, it got a write-up in the New York Times. That's not, that's not a common thing for even the best games. So there is this, I think, general idea that you need, you need to be unique to get people's attention. So like you're saying, there's always, here's the popular thing that I'm like but I'm also this very unique twist that no one else is doing. And I wonder if you take this to its, well, conclusion isn't the right word, if you take it to its logical continuation, is it going to get to the point where everything is so unique that it just becomes a huge mess anyway? So now you're trying to rise above the other thousand equally unique games coming out each year. Yeah, very good points. And and it'll be interesting to see how the how the board game uh, community, I guess, evolves over time. It's interesting. I was watching the last uh, five years that I've been a part of it. Things have, things have grown so quickly. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've gone very off topic with this episode. <laughs> yeah. You know, one, one other thing that, that I'll mention when, when it comes to playing other people's games uh, as a designer, the, the idea of 
And we talked a little bit about this last time, but the idea of, of elegance or simplicity in, in games, simplicity in, in a positive way, when, when you play other people's games and you find the, the kinds of games that, that make it, there's certainly some, some complex games that, that make it, but there's, there's a streamlined simplicity or elegance to those games that, that make it. That it's impressive that you don't have to throw in the kitchen sink and, and everything. Um, you take a look at King Domino or take a look at many of Reiner Knizia's games or, or so many, so many other games out there. And I recognize that in my game design, sometimes I'm shoving too much in there. And when I can whittle that away and, and, and kind of refine that process, it, it often makes for a better game. And I, I have only learned that through playing other people's games. Whereas if I were in the vacuum of my own mind, I would probably just keep adding stuff. And it's interesting. It makes me think, so there's, so taking other people's games as inspiration, there's, there's large games that have lots of pieces and there's very trimmed down elegant games. If you start with a trimmed down elegant game, your unique twist could be, it's this, but I added on this new thing. But then other things, you can take really big games and say, it's like this, but I trimmed it down to just this one mechanism and worked on that. So it can go either way and you can trim things down, you can add to them, but like playing other games gives you, I mean, inspiration if nothing else, but it gives you like a, a palette of mechanisms to use, systems. I um, I talked about Auction Comics last episode, and that started off just, I wanted to make a simple auction game. It wasn't an 18 card game to start, it's bigger now. But one of the things I struggled with a lot in the early versions, I mean, always really, is because it's an auction game, and it was at the beginning, it was a very pure auction game, closed economy. So you had some money, you spent it, you lost your money, then you had no money. And that was always a problem for people because they would inevitably make a mistake, essentially, because if you valued everything super correctly, it's a really boring game, but you wouldn't run out of money. But they wouldn't. They would, they would bid too high, and they would win when they didn't expect to or things like that, and they would run out of money, which, on the one hand, you should be punished for playing poorly. That's a type of game you can have. But it was, it was like a short game that people were very upset that they ran out of money and didn't have anything to do for two or three turns. And it was <laughs> a very unfun experience. So I was like, okay, I need to inject more, I need to inject more money into this game somehow. So I had I added in other things where people were just getting money, and the problem I ran into there was it just the economy was just exploding and everyone always had money and nothing mattered, and then people were making ridiculous bids and it just it fell apart in the opposite direction. So on one side you could never do anything, on the other side you could always do anything and you didn't care. And then Neuheimat, which has recently been remade as The Estates, is one of my favorite auction games because it's it's a very it's a very tight it's a closed auction and you're it's it's very open you can basically on your turn you pick almost any item available and you put it up for auction and then everyone else makes a bid on it and then the unique twist which i mean i think it's unique to that it might have been done before but at the end the auctioneer can choose to either accept the high bid or they can pay the high bidder whatever their bid amount was and it creates this one it's the really unique tension there of players bidding high in hopes that the auctioneer will pay them for it. So even if it's something you don't want, you try to push it just enough that you can get good money for something you didn't even want. But there's always that it's kind of a push-your-luck thing of they actually say, okay, and then you overpaid for something you didn't need. And so there's a very, it's a very tense line. But what it creates is the, because the economy, actually, correction, auction comics was not a closed economy. It was a shrinking economy because the money would leave the game. 
So with Neuheimat, the, it becomes a closed economy, and any money that you spend goes to the auctioneer. So on your turn as the auctioneer, you'd have a chance to get more money. That still wasn't enough for the game, and it added in sales so people could. So now it's a growing economy, but it's, I'm working on restricting it. It's still a difficult design, but it's going well. Anyway, the point is, uh, Neuheimat had this wonderful auction mechanism that I have not really seen anywhere else. It might be in a couple of the games I haven't yet played. Um, I still haven't played Modern Art. People keep telling me to, and I would love to play Modern Art someday. But it's that really unique twist that added so much to the game. As soon as I put that in, that became the core the core part of this auction game. Is that That's the auction mechanism I'm working with and going through a different system, so it's not very much like Neuheimat, but it has that same system. And that, that was a direct inspiration from playing Neuheimat, enjoying the very, very cutthroat nature of that auction system. You know, Chris, question I've got for you. When, when it comes to games that, I guess when it comes to this topic, I wonder what games have inspired you or what have been those seminal works for you in your design? So as I said in our, our first episode together, Eclipse was the game that inspired me to design. It was, it was that elegance of moving pieces around. And initially, it wasn't even any, any particular thing about it that I worked off of. I mean, my first game was kind of a, a big sci-fi war game, sort of like it. It had hexagons. It wasn't really similar in any mechanical way. But that was an initial inspiration, and I took that with me. And I think that's, that's a lot of why I focus so much on elegance, because I think Eclipse, Eclipse is a massive game. And it has some parts that are very fiddly and would could uh, benefit from being streamlined a little if you can figure it out. But... I feel like Eclipse is a nine-hour game in a three-hour package, and that's really nice. Like the, They've streamlined so much of the bookkeeping by the system of moving things around. So that's always been an inspiration. I try to take that into my larger games and streamline information as much as possible so that you can focus on the gameplay. Another one would be HeroQuest, because that was, that was a childhood favorite, and that was just the, the creation of the whole system. And these are more like base base level inspiration, not specific mechanisms. I think Noi Hyman is the the most specific example I have of actually being directly inspired. But um, Lords of Waterdeep, again, for worker placement, that was my initial introduction to that. And it's it's such a pure version of worker placement that, that showed me, like, like, that's given me so many ideas of how to build off of. How about yourself? For me, uh, I've got a few games that stand out. Um, there's there's a game by Strawberry Studios called Three Wishes. It's not it's never been a huge thing. Uh, I saw it on on a Gen Con list several years back, and it was so simple in in what it was trying to do, and and it has propelled me in a number of directions. Just looking at that simple uh, elegance for uh, it's probably an overused term, but it, it really does have that. Uh, Dead Man's Draw. I think anyone who's looking for a, a push your luck. Uh, kind of game. Dead Man's Draw just does it phenomenally well. It's just such a good game. Um, it's probably the most played game in, in my house and, and has been from the day we, we got it. It's just a really, really great one. And so when, when I think about wanting to put a push-your-luck element in a game, uh, I really draw a lot of inspiration from that. Raiders of the North Sea, another another one we talked about. Vast the Crystal Caverns. Um, I, I love the idea of what it attempted to do, and, and really I think it was is fairly successful in that asymmetrical gameplay where everybody's doing something so completely different, and yet the game clicks. It, it just works. Uh, the, the other that I would mention isn't a game, 
uh, Ryan Lockett, the, the designer himself. Every, everything that comes out by him, I want to take a look at it because I think that his games over time have told a story of he as a designer and because he doesn't have other people publishing his games, he, he's in charge of the whole thing. Uh, I've been able to see him grow and develop as a designer over time. And, and that's inspiring to me. I, I want to learn to be a better designer from having watched somebody else go through the process. So the, those are the, the ones that stand out to me. Yeah, I think you brought them up. Ryan Locke is a very interesting case because his, and I don't know the specifics, I've never met him, but his, his system is very similar to very small designers that self-publish and, you know, like do, do their own artwork, do their own design and publish themselves. But they're usually very limited print runs they do 50 maybe 100 copies and it's it's a very small thing but he's doing that same system where he's doing his own art he's doing his own design you know there's still play testing involved obviously but massively successful games mm-hmm. in that same process so it's it's a very interesting thing that uh, it would be great to have him on someday and talk to him about it because it's it's very much like that small indie publisher vibe just on a massively successful scale so it's a kind of a strange thing how that can work at that level and still like I, I would say it's super rare and he's maybe the only one that does it at that level but uh, yeah it's just a very interesting thing yeah and I think the other thing that that Ryan does for for me is so I, I don't know him I, I have met him uh, he's he's a Utah guy which is why I bring this up when when I found that there was someone in Utah who had been a part of the the same guild that, that I'm a part of now and achieved the kind of success that he had part of that inspired me to just jump in and do a little bit more. And and a lot of other people have kind of filled that role uh, over time as well. But just recognizing that Ryan, who's just such a, a nice and humble and and cool guy, was able to just jump in and, and really make something of, of himself and the things that he wanted to create. And, and that was inspiring. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because I'm thinking like other, a lot of other industries have a like a very specific like geographic focus, like movies are made in Hollywood while they're shot around the world. Like the main studios are located in Hollywood. Like you go to Hollywood to get into movies with game design. It's so amazingly spread out everywhere. Like there's not, I mean, there's some regions that are more densely populated by publishers and designers than others. But I think mostly that just relies on sheer population because you kind of get more people in a more populated area. But it's it's very much spread around, so you you can find like oh like here's here's a super successful person that's in my state or in my town and just in my design group, and it's it's kind of a, a surprising thing to realize at the start. Like I wasn't aware of how many board game publishers are located in Massachusetts, but there's there's quite a few. Yeah, that's very cool, it, it, and it's fun to to find those people who have been successful and say oh my gosh they're near my hometown. I, I, and I know this is off topic, but I, I was backing a, or I, I was looking at a, at a Kickstarter on, uh, or looking at a campaign on Kickstarter and it was called Fugitive or is called Fugitive. And when I found out that Tim Fowers was also a, a Utah guy and it was a, a design that I was really intrigued by and thought was just really excellent, uh, that was exciting to me as well. Um, and so sometimes when you just have the, those moments, uh, it, it's fun, and and since that time, I've I've come to to know Tim, and he's very much a part of the the guild that that I'm with right now. He's invited us out to his studio, and you know we we have design discussions out there, and and he's he's been a, a huge part of you know the the guild, and a, I don't know, I, I I like the the approach that he has to game design. So 
Fugitive was a really good game. I've only played it once. So that brings up another topic. Playing other people's games is something that requires time. Time is not something I have a lot of with game design, a job, a podcast, a design contest that I started because I like to make myself too busy. So I really very rarely get to play published games. Most of the games I get to play are other designers' work, which I think it has a lot of the same benefits of playing published works, although I think it's slightly different because you're playing games that are kind of at the same level of your own, not necessarily in whether they're good or bad, but in that they're they're unfinished and they're inspired by these published games. So in a lot of ways, I think playing games by other designers in the design phase is kind of like secondhand knowledge of playing these important games, which I don't think is a terrible thing. It's maybe playing them directly or at least reading about them is is more useful. But I think still getting getting any sort of exposure to them is helpful. So I track my my game plays on BGG. There, there's a an app that's an unofficial BGG app that I every time I play a game, I, I log it in there. I don't do it with prototypes. I know there's a, a way to do that, but uh, this is only for published games. And I, I do play quite a few published games. Th- this month alone, uh, I've got 47 games logged, and that's the most that I've had in, in any month this year, that, but the least is 15. And so I, I really immerse myself in other people's game designs and, and feel like that's an important part of, of the work that, that I want to do. But I also recognize anytime I'm playing somebody else's game, I'm not doing my own. And so I've kind of tagged it in my head as research. So today I'm doing research, and, and that means that I get to play somebody else's game. I also I track all my plays, again, not prototypes, although I probably should. I mean, I have notebooks of my own designs, but I don't really track other people's. But I have four plays this month. One of which is Candyland, so that's only on the edge of counting. But yeah. Um, yeah, I do I do not get a lot of published games in, and a lot of the ones I do get to play, I'm just playing the app version. I don't know if you're familiar with the 10x10 challenge where you try to play 10 games yeah. 10 times in a year. I did that last year, but I, I specifically decided to do a 10x10 digital challenge because, again, I don't have the time to... I don't get to just regular playing meetups very often. I go to very few conventions... And the conventions I do go to are usually design-focused, so I'm not even playing published games then. So I, I did the 10 by 10 and I managed to just just finish it, but it involved me playing like three or four games of Tigris and Euphrates on New Year's Eve. Oh, no. So it was, it was a tight one. I mean, I enjoyed the game, so it was fun, but it, I, uh, at the end there, it was, it was really work. And I, I decided to do it again this year, and I'm even further behind. So I really have to uh, pick that up. Yeah, but. I'm doing a 10 by 10 myself, and I've got four games so far that I've played uh, 10 times or more, so I, I've still got some work to do there. That's, that's pretty good. You're almost halfway done. It's only July. Yeah. It's still July. I guess you're a little behind. <laughs> but yeah, I would, I would love to be able to play games more often, but it's, it's, just, it's a tough schedule thing. That three-hour commute, like I said, it's great for podcasts and not so great for having all this time to play games. So that does it for this episode. Um... Again, if you have any comments on anything we talked about, you want to chime in, you can join the Discord. There's there's also technically a Facebook group, although I don't think anyone has ever posted anything to it. Uh, the Discord is relatively active, mostly about the design, so you can head to theboardgameworkshop.com. The link to the Discord is right on the front page there. Also, we have the Google Voice number. If you want to leave a message, you can either leave a question, leave a comment, leave a contributor segment, or... Or you can come up with your own contributor segment if you want to add something to the show. It can be a regular 
recurring segment or just a one-time thing you want to talk about. And Dustin, anything else you want to say before we close up? No, this was a, a good topic and looking forward to future episodes. People listening to this, it's the end of August, so summer is over. If you work at a school, which I know a lot of game designers do, uh, good luck with your new school year. I know I will be back working with classes probably a week after you hear this. And again, so contact info. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter at BlueQBGS, and you can contact the show with all the stuff that will be at the end. Dustin? Yeah, I'm on the Board Game Workshop Discord channel, so if you want to reach out to me that way. Uh, I also have uh, the name Odd Fox Games on Facebook or through BGG if you want to reach out to me, either of those avenues as well. Awesome. Well, thanks for talking with me, and have a lovely day. Bye-bye. That's all for this episode. The Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. You can check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor-level supporters. Chris Turner, Vegan Al, Brad Bachelor, Roscoe Schock, Bas Cottis, and Corey Mudderman. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at the BG Workshop and on Facebook at The Board Game Workshop. Join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can call the show's Google Voice number at 725-222-8249 and leave a question or a contributor segment for a future episode. You can get the links for these and all show notes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.